Today on Maine Calling, our automotive experts back in the driver's seat to answer your questions. Wondering if you need to take your car into the dealership for a recall? Funny you ask, it just happens to be Vehicle Safety Recall Week. And John Paul from AAA has some thoughts about that. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Main Calling, John is joined by Car Talk's Jamie Page Deaton to discuss recalls, the automotive market and industry, and more. We'll find out whether worldwide kinks in the supply chain have been ironed out yet, what GM's big worker buyout announcement yesterday portends for it and other car makers, and why used car prices are going up again plus the late winter, early spring issue of Potholes. Main Calling is just ahead. Main Calling On Demand is made possible by listeners and by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org and by Welch and Forbes, working with clients to manage the full range of events that come with building wealth, from investments to trustee services. More WelchForbes.com. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. The good news is that used prices, excuse me, used car prices have come down. Well, no, wait a minute. Used car prices are going back up. Teslas are the future of automobiles. Wait a minute. Teslas now are supposedly unsafe and subject to recalls. If you are having trouble following which end is up when it comes to everything automotive, you're in luck today. Our experts are here to answer your car buying, car repair, car driving questions. We'll also talk about the industry. Joining me, Jamie Page Deaton, who is editor-in-chief at cartalk.com, and John Paul, senior manager of public affairs and traffic safety with AAA Northeast. He is the car doctor. We invite you to join the conversation. Send an email, a brief email, please, with your questions to talk at mainpublic.org. You can post a comment on social media or give us a call 1-800-399-3566, 1-800-399-3566. I'm going to start like I like to start by asking you what you've been driving lately and what you've been really excited about, if anything. Jamie. Thanks, Jennifer. Um, I just recently got out of the Cadillac CT5. And this, I think it's, you know, it's a sedan. It's a little bit of an upmarket sedan. And it's a car that's really easy to overlook because Cadillac and particularly their gas powered cars and not their SUVs don't get a lot of attention. Um, but I was driving it around for the entire week. And by the end of the week, I was just thinking, you know what, man, this is nice. This is comfortable. This is pleasant to drive. So not exciting, but if you're looking for something just a little bit nicer than, you know, your basic Honda Accord, Toyota Camry, Toyota Avalon, um, I've just really liked it. There was, there was nothing about it that I didn't like, but I will say for what I'm really excited about the Kia EV6, I think we've talked about it before. Um, it's a relatively affordable EV comes from Kia. It's got great styling and it's one of those EVs where, you know, if you don't need a whole lot of cargo space, there's still plenty of cargo space, you know, for, you know, going to Costco and things like that, but you certainly couldn't take, you know, your Rottweiler to Costco with you in the car. Um, but it's just 
it's an EV that doesn't have a whole lot of compromises. Good price, good power, good range, fast charging, good technology. It's one of those things where, you know, one of the EVs where you get into it and you think, all right, the future's here and it's looking pretty good. I want to say something though, Jamie, I was just looking that car up, as you said, good price, and it starts at $50,000. Whoa, that's a good price these days? Well, I should say a good price for an EV, right? We're looking at, and the other thing to remember too is those new tax credits for EVs, they're coming into effect. Um, you can get a lot of um, you know, local taxes, tax breaks on it, federal tax, bre tax breaks on it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, 50K for an EV is, is not too terrible when you consider the fact that you know, if you're looking at a Tesla, you're looking at closer to 80 for some of these more luxurious ones. Wow. Okay, John, what about you? What have you been driving? What are you excited about? Well, I've been driving a Hyundai Santa Fe plug-in hybrid. So that kind of gives you a little bit of the best of both worlds because it has about a 30-mile range when fully charged. I don't have level two charging where I live, so I have to plug it into a regular, you know, outlet outside. Um but pretty much my day-to-day -day, day -day driving is, you know, from here to Home Depot and from here to the supermarket. And, and it's probably 25 miles round trip most days. So for me, in the time I've had it, I don't really need to go get gasoline. So it actually works out good. And it has a total range of about 400 miles with the gasoline engine. So it gives you plenty of range. It's comfortable to drive. I own a Hyundai Santa Fe Sport, so it feels pretty similar inside. The one thing I will say about it, as much as I like the technology and some of the newer technology inside of it, um, the, the infotainment screen is really clear, easy to see. Overall handling, I didn't see a big improvement from my, what is now a five-year-old car, to this one. It handles about the same. It rides about the same. I kind of expected to see things a little bit better, maybe. Uh, but overall, a very nice vehicle that does everything it needs to do. Um, and you talk about car prices. I think the average transaction price of a new car now is closing in on $50,000. Mm, so, and this um, uh, Hyundai Santa Fe plug-in hybrid, just looked it up, about 42000 starting price. Right. So a little yeah, bit less exactly. than average. Exactly. And like Jamie pointed out, um, there are incentives for plug-in hybrids as well that can make it make it good. Um, the other car, and I don't want to say I was excited about it, but it was sort of fun, was the Jaguar F-Type R. So two-seat Jaguar, <laughs> yeah, two Jaguar, almost 600 horsepower, almost that much torque, all-wheel drive, handled phenomenally. Um, it actually rode pretty comfortably for a sports car. It really is sort of the Jaguar equivalent of, say, something like a Corvette or something. But um, somebody said to me, is it a real nice car? And I'm like, it's a really nice car. But then again, for $130,000, it should be a really nice car. So um, and it seems it seems as if the last few cars I drove, I was I was actually pleased to drive a Kia Nero and a Hyundai Santa Fe because the last few cars I drove, we're sort of up in the ridiculous price range. Um, Lincoln Navigator Black Label Edition, which was 130000 you know, uh, a Range Rover long wheelbase Defender that was over $100,000. Those cars are fun, but they're, they're, they're just they're way out of my 
even realm of dreaming about. So, but fun to drive. Okay, now we're going to talk about serious stuff. Jamie, uh, GM had a big announcement yesterday. Tell me what it was and why it's so important to um, the whole automotive industry. Yeah, this is, um, you know, depending on on what type of job you have and where you are in your career with GM, this could be a good announcement or a bad announcement. So GM announced that they're offering buyouts to all of their salaried white collar workers. Um, the goal here is to reduce their white collar workforce so that they don't have to do, um, you know, forced layoffs and forced buyouts. And the reason that they're doing this is because, you know, like all car companies, they are really in a position where they need to evolve from producing, you know, gasoline powered cars only and moving more into hybrid plug in hybrid and EV spaces. And so you see, you know, GM and Ford, they're investing in battery makers. They're looking at, you know, working with um, mines in order and owning mines in order to get the materials that they need for these batteries. Because one thing that the car companies really learned from the pandemic and, and the resulting supply chain issues is they, if they want to stay in business, if they want to stay ahead of the competition, they really need to have kind of an end-to-end -end supply chain that they have an ownership stake in. And so what you're looking at here is just a reduction of white collar workforce so that they can refocus, change and, you know, enact the strategy where they're moving towards more electrified mobility. Um, you know, and so I think if, you know, if, for the GM workers who are maybe closer to retirement, it's my understanding and the reporting I've seen is that these buyouts are fairly generous. You know, if you were thinking of, if they were thinking of retiring in the next year or two, it might be a good way to go. Um, some of the other workers though, maybe it'll just be enough to tide them over until they can, can find something else. Um, but this is really just the beginning of where a lot of automakers are going to need to go. They're going to need to change their workforce because they have to change their products um, to meet you know, new emission standards and the demands of the marketplace and the demands of supply chains. Mm. Speaking of news of the week, John, I understand it is, let me see if I can get this right, National Vehicle Safety Recall Week. Um, why does this matter to you? Well, you didn't get the card. You didn't get the Hallmark card for National Safety Recall Week because it is really important to check your vehicle all the time to see if it's been recalled because studies have shown that that's only 30 to 40% of the recalls ever actually get performed. And some of these recalls really do impact safety. In fact, everybody knows about the Takata airbag recalls. It's been in the news so much, but some of the original Honda Accords that had Takata recalls, they're actually saying um, where, you know, you know, don't drive the car because they're so old now that if the airbag does deploy, um, the framework that holds it in place deteriorates and the airbag could come literally flying off the steering wheel and it can do all kinds of damage to you, possibly kill you. Um, and the other thing about recalls, recalls are totally free. So there's no reason not to get one done. Now, we have three cars in our family. We have an old Volkswagen that's, I don't know, 15 years old now. We have a newer Volkswagen that's um, seven years old. That one just got recalled because of an airbag issue. But unfortunately, there there's no um, there's no fix for it yet. So, so what do you do? Do you drive it and hope for the best? You kind of have to, I guess. And you kind of, you know, weigh the odds out. You know, when was the last time I was in a car that an airbag deployed? Um, for me, never. But, you know, it could happen. 
And my own car, the Hyundai that I own, um, hasn't been recalled, but it's one of the cars that Hyundai has that uses an ignition key. And it's also one of the cars that can be pretty easily stolen. Um, uh, there, I, there was a, you know, social media being social media, there was a TikTok thing about, you know, kind of how to steal a Kia or a Hyundai. And my car sort of fits into that category. And although if you lock the car, the alarm goes off, but if somebody breaks a window and crawls in, well, it's a different story, I suppose. But, uh, but Hyundai is, does have a fix for it. They, they're going to make the alarm go off longer and the key does have to be in the car for it to work. Um, so keep, keep an eye on those kind of things. And National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has a website that once you put in your vehicle identification number, 10 years ago, you would get, you would see recall information in the mail and it might give you a serial number or, or it might just give you a range of this year to this year, the car has been recalled, but your car might've not been one of those. With the NHTSA app now, it's really good. You just put in your vehicle identification number, periodically check it and it'll let you know if it's been recalled. And uh, on my own car, there was a recall earlier and you know, it showed it is repaired, which is great, you know, so makes it nice and easy. So good time of the good time of the year i guess you know that and what is it uh what's coming up next uh pie day so make a pie make a make a pie check for a vehicle recall that's right it's uh four days till pie day and i have that recall webpage right up right now on my computer john it's really easy it looks like i haven't done it but you know there's a big rectangle enter 17 character vin number and so um we'll put that on our facebook page and in our newsletter for our audience to um be able to access it easily jamie um i noticed that you at car talk have been coming up with a bunch of best of lists <laughs> i posted on facebook the best trucks list that um you were t took part in i got a little bit of a kick out of the last um truck on the list do you remember what you put the, 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 i think it was something like the best imaginary truck oh the the tesla cyber truck yes yes so the tesla cyber truck um has become a little bit of a punchline i think within the automotive industry because it's always coming next year always next year and i believe it's been coming next year since about 2017 so five years ago it was coming next year and if you haven't seen this thing it looks like a doorstop um it's just basically a wedge shaped silver truck when they first brought it out um you know elon musk was driving it through the streets it wasn't even street legal as built um didn't have rear view mirrors this is also the one where when they were announcing it and showing it off they said that oh and you can't break the glass in the windows so they had an executive whack it with a baseball bat and lo and behold the window shattered so it is i mean if you're looking for a truck you can hold your breath and wait for the tesla truck i would not recommend that um, but there are lots of other great ones out there. I mean, if you want an EV truck, the Ford F-150 Lightning is just phenomenal, fun to drive, comfortable, fast, and it can do all the work that, you know, any any truck that you'd want to do. But yeah, the uh, best imaginary truck is the Tesla Cybertruck. And, you know, it'll probably lose once it finally comes out next year, it'll lose that <laughs> designation and maybe move up onto other lists. Oh, that's funny. John, before we go to a break, I have to ask you, I've noticed that pothole season has begun. What's your advice for us? Uh, stay home. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I mean, as spring starts to roll around, it is pothole season. And the average repair cost these days is close to $3,000 for pothole damage because so many cars today have alloy wheels that get damaged very easily, low-profile tires. So you look at tires today on a lot of cars, the distance between the road and the edge of the wheel is pretty narrow now. and Those can get damaged pretty easily. Cars sit a little bit lower to the ground. So if you hit something just right, you can do damage to the exhaust, the engine, the transmission, all kinds of stuff. So kind of the general rule is just like any good drive, scan the roadway all the time. Look, look far ahead. Um, don't look right in front of the hood of the car because you can't react quick enough if you're looking right in front of the hood of the car. So scan way ahead. Look for potential potholes. Look for puddles um, in the roadway, too, because a lot of times a big puddle just covers a big pothole. So look for that kind of stuff. Also, if you can avoid it, if you can swerve, now, you know, do that cautiously because you don't want to swerve into traffic or swerve off the road. But if you can swerve around the pothole, do that. But if, if there's nothing else you can do, slow down as quickly and as, as efficiently as you can. And just before you hit the pothole, take your foot off the brake pedal. And what will happen is if you hit the pothole with your foot on the brakes, the wheels are locked and you can do more damage to the car. Also, when your foot is on the brake like that, the nose of the car is being forced down because of because of just G-forces. And if you take your foot off the car, chances are it's going to bounce up. Just uh, take your foot off the brake. car's going to bounce up a little bit and it's going to roll through the pothole. And if you're lucky, you don't do any damage. Words of wisdom from John Paul. We are talking automotive news, automotive tips. What is your question? Our phone number, 1-800-399-3566. Email us, talk at mainpublic.org, or find us on social media. We'll be right back. And welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on the program, the latest news from the world of cars, trucks, and SUVs, and answers to your questions about your own personal vehicle. My guest, John Paul, a senior manager of public affairs and traffic safety with AAA Northeast, and Jamie Page Deaton, editor-in-chief at cartalk.com. You can Ask any question you like. We do not judge. You can send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org, comment on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Again, 1-800-399-3566. We have two Tesla questions coming in. I'm going to get those out of the way, and then we're not going to talk about Teslas again for the rest of the show. One is from Paul. Is it true that Tesla is allowing non-Teslas to access the supercharger network? If so, how does that work? Seems like it could be a game changer. Jamie. Yes, Tesla has announced that they will allow non-Tesla owners to um, access the supercharger network. Absolutely, it will be a game changer because one of the things that has really held back EV adoption and just made it EVs just a little bit more difficult to live with than um, you know conventional gas cars is the charging infrastructure. So what you're going to need to do in order to take advantage of this, you will need to get in a, need to get an account for the supercharger network so they can charge you for the electricity that you're using. Um, and then you're going to need to make sure that you have an adapter so that you can pull, plug your car in to the Tesla superchargers because they do use a little bit of a different setup than what you see at some other charging stations. Um, so this is 
really, I mean, it's a great opportunity for expanding your, you know, kind of the range and the ease of getting um, your EV and keeping it on the road. I will say though, um, what I haven't seen, and the big question for me is the um, charging time on the superchargers for non-Tesla models. So one of the things that Tesla did really well with the supercharger network is that, you know, the, the, the cars charge relatively fast on it. You know, they can get up to 80% charge in about 20 minutes. That does not mean that other EVs will necessarily charge quite as quickly. Um, so make sure that, you know, I think it's a great membership to get to just widen your charging options when you're out on the road because the supercharger network is so good. You can drive coast to coast um, in an EV and have plenty of opportunities to plug in, but know that the time may be a little different than, you know, what your Tesla driving friends may get on a supercharger. John. And the other thing to keep in mind too, that Tesla superchargers are sort of set up for Teslas. The, the charging cord tends to be a little bit shorter and you may find that even though you have an account, you, it may be a little bit awkward to be able to find out how to pull into it. Um, you may even have to be kind of diagonal or sideways, you know, and obviously don't block another charging stall. The other issue is that, um, for instance, the Hyundai and Kia cars use 800 volt systems. And we've had some issues at work trying to charge some of these, uh, some of these cars on certain um, charging devices. And I just, when I was looking up an issue with portable charging units, trying to charge Kias and Hyundais, um, I read just recently, someone was trying to charge a, uh, Kia, I believe out in California or one of these now open Tesla chargers and it wouldn't, it wouldn't charge. It just kept coming up. Something's wrong. So there may be some compatibility issues on some vehicles, but on other vehicles, Ford Lightning, for instance, I guess it charged up just fine. So um, depends on the depends on the car a little bit. So you know some things to be in mind. But absolutely right. I I drove from uh, Massachusetts to Florida a couple times and seeing Teslas on the road with out of state plates. You know, you see a Tesla with a New York plate in Alabama or something, and they just kind of plan their routes out and charge up as they go along and, it, and it's fast and efficient. And if you can do that with every electric car and not stop at a gas station, it's a pretty good day. Okay. Here's the second Tesla question again, then I'm going to go to other models, other questions. So Jamie, quickly, we'll go through this email from Jonathan is the build quality of a Tesla model three or Y getting any better. I think with the new tax incentive, a base model can be had for under $40,000. Would you buy a model three? Would I buy a Model 3? No. Um, the I have not seen any indication that the build quality on those cars is getting better. Now, to be fair, I'm not standing at, you know, the end of the line at the Tesla factory where they're making these things, you know, doing QA work on it. Um, but the number of reported problems um, don't seem to be going down with these models. I will say, though, it does seem to be a little bit of the luck of the draw. I know people who have bought Teslas and they're bulletproof. I also know people who've bought Teslas and they're, you know, sitting in their driveway, basically a giant paperweight, you know, for weeks at a time. Um, so it really kind of comes down to your risk tolerance. And the thing to remember, though, is with the tax incentives, there are other really good EVs that don't have some of the same build quality issues that you can get your hands on, like the uh, the Chevy Bolt 
um, is a great option compared to the Model 3. It's a little bit less luxurious. It's a little bit less stylish. And, you know, to be honest with you, it doesn't quite have the cachet that, you know, a Tesla does. But um, it's made by a car company that's used to building cars and has been building cars, you know, for almost a century. So they, they kind of have it down. Um, the Ford Mach -E, Mustang Mach-E is a, you know, it's going to be more than $40,000. You might want to check into the tax incentives and depending on how you option it to bring the price down. But that's one that's fast, fun to drive. And again, it's it's made by a car company that doesn't have quite the baggage that, you know, Tesla does with regard to build quality. Okay, other questions. I'll send this one to you, John. An email from Scott, who has an oil consumption issue with his 2013 CRV. Scott asks, should I have to add 1.5 to two quarts of OW20 weight oil between scheduled changes. Vehicle's been this way since the first oil change when I purchased the car new. The Honda dealership says, this is normal. I don't understand. I never had to add any oil to my 1982 diesel rabbit with more than 220,000 miles on it. No leaks or evidence of oil anywhere. It just seems to vanish. Well, he actually kind of pointed out the issue by the kind of oil. That car uses a very thin oil, 0W20 oil, where his diesel rabbit used a thicker diesel grade oil. Um, in between oil changes, that Honda probably goes six or 7,000 miles between oil changes. So adding a quart of oil every 2,500 miles is not unusual today. Uh, because of the types of oil we're using. And the tolerances in today's engines are very, very tight. And you need to use this thinner oil uh, to lubricate all the places the oil needs to lubricate. And unfortunately for someone who's used to going 5,000 miles between oil changes and never having, having to add a quart of oil, that is not the case in a lot of cars today. And uh, in, the case of, in the case of the CRV, he, the dealer's right. It is kind of normal. And it is important to open the hood every, you know, 1,500 miles and check the oil and make sure it's full. Great tip. Okay, John in Portland, you're on main calling. Go ahead. Hey, thanks. I'm wondering if the uh, car experts can direct me to a car or pickup that isn't, uh, doesn't have all of the uh, fancy gizmos and features, you know, like hand crank windows instead of electric windows. And also, it doesn't cost more than I paid for my house. Uh, and John, are you looking for a pickup truck or a, a, a sedan? What are you looking for? Uh, a pickup truck or a sedan. I'm just looking for a basic vehicle that's brand new, you know, freshly made, but uh, isn't loaded down with lots of extra features that I really don't need. So you need a mode of transportation you can afford. Jamie. The uh, answer to your question, John, and I'm just going to say this, this is the answer to most people's cars question these days, Ford Maverick. Um, it's not going to have crank windows, but beyond power windows, it's not going to have much else. Um, it's a great compact pickup truck, drives on a car platform, perfect for, you know, taking stuff to the dump, getting some, um, you know, getting some stuff from, you know, the, the home supply center, the garden center, just, and it, is it gives you the flexibility of the truck while you're driving a car great on gas there is an available hybrid model if you wanted to do a little bit better there 
Um, the other thing that's cool about it, um, if you are a DIYer, um, they have plans that you can download and various QR codes that you can scan throughout the Maverick. And those QR codes take you to a site where you can download plans so you can you know, get some two by fours and build your own bike rack for the back of the Maverick. If you're into 3D printing, you can download plans to print a couple more cup holders in the Maverick. It is um, one of the few cars that I've tested in about the last five years or so where it was really Really hard for me to not run out and buy one. Um, I think it really flies under the radar because it's not big and it's not flashy. The price, you know, base model is, uh, you know, about $21,000, assuming you can find it there. Um, and it really just is like Ford just knocked it out of the park with this one. And not a lot of people know about it because when they think truck, they think, you know, the big Ford Raptors and, you know, the big, the big, big Ram 1500s. Uh, but the Ford Maverick, man, that is where it's at. That's right. Our executive producer, Jonathan Smith, loves his. John, you are nodding as well. Yeah, I have, I have yet to talk to anyone. And whenever I see someone in a Maverick, I, I, if I try to, if they look approachable, I always say, to them, how do you like your <laughs> truck? You know, And I've yet to talk to anyone who hasn't been happy with it. The only person I talked to was an electrician. They were perfectly happy with everything it did, but they had the base model and it had no cruise control. And they said, you know, that's the one thing I kind of miss. I kind of miss cruise control. But other than that, they were really happy with it. They liked the fuel economy. They liked the utility of it. Um, it did everything they needed to do. And everybody I talked to just, just has been really happy with them. And in the the base model is a hybrid so you get this crazy good gas mileage in a little utilitarian truck um i i agree with jamie i i kind of want one now too john thanks for your question i'm sure other people share your question uh we will move to another call from portland here's zach hi zach go ahead hi yeah thanks for taking my call um i have a 2019 hyundai ionic plug-in hybrid that uh, has unusual brake noise. And I've talked to the dealer about it a few different times uh, and they tell me it's normal. I've gone online and looked at some forums and not found the answer I was looking for. What the dealership says is that uh, the brake rotors, because of the regenerative braking system, get very little traffic and so they have a lot of corrosion on them. And uh, that's the noise that I'm hearing. And it does sound like a grinding noise. I was wondering if the panel's got anything to offer on that. John. Um, describe the noise a little, you know, where you said it was a, um, where it was a. Yeah, uh, okay. When I, first the, mm-hmm. when I first engaged the brakes on the car, it's the regenerative braking system that comes on. It's not one of those single pedal uh, regenerative braking kind of things. It's a little more old school than that, more like what you would see in an older hybrid where there's a little bit of regenerative uh, action. But uh, then at a certain point, the mechanical brakes will engage. Or if you, uh, you know, if you try to brake very rapidly, the mechanical brakes will engage. Or when you come to a full stop, the mechanical brakes engage. And that's mostly what I'm hearing. I'm a pretty laid back driver. And it's like uh, right before I come to a stop, I'll hear it kick in and it's, you know, a loud noise. And it'll stop if I take my foot off the pedal. So I know it's the brakes and not the transmission trying to shift, you know, down or something like that. And yeah, that's it. Yeah. Because when you take your foot off the accelerator, what ends up happening is um, the fancy transmission in there actually sort of runs like a generator. And that's what puts the power back into the system. And as you pointed out, 
that's what actually slows the car down. It isn't the brakes at that point. And then when you finally do step on the brakes, then the brakes work like any conventional car would. So if the noise is happening when you absolutely first take your foot off the accelerator, it may be internal to the vehicle, but if it's only happening when you finally get to the point where you're putting your foot on the brake pedal, yeah, it could be some rust and corrosion building up. And depending on where you live, uh, you know, between salt air and salt on the roads and all that sort of stuff, and even just dampness, you might come out in the morning. And I guess here's the real clue to it. You know, if you can come out in the morning and look at your brakes, and if you see a light coating of rust on the brakes, uh, right on the brake rotors, you know that that's what the issue is. And unfortunately, it's going to take a couple of brake applications for that to go away. Now, um, after you've been driving it for a couple hours, is the noise still there? Yeah, okay. Uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. But let me back up uh, and clarify something. The noise doesn't happen when uh, I take my foot off the accelerator. Um, Good. Okay. This car, when you when you shift from the accelerator to the brake, uh, or if, if you, let's just say when you take your foot off the accelerator, there's like a very little bit of regenerating that happens while you're coasting. Right. And then right. as you start to apply the brakes, that the regenerative uh, portion, which you can monitor, there's a display right. on the dash, yep. mm-hmm. uh, starts to engage more and more. And then just before you come to a complete stop, or if you have to brake uh, considerably harder, then the mechanical brakes will engage. Um, that is when I'm hearing the noise is, you know, not, not when I first take my foot off, foot off the accelerator and not when I first put my foot on the brakes, but right before the car comes to a stop. And I think it's when the mechanical brakes are engaging. I'm not hundred percent sure. And it doesn't tend to go away as I drive and I drive the car regularly. It doesn't sit for long periods of time. Okay. Zach, I want John to answer and I want to move on to some other calls. So we have time for him. Thanks. Sorry. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I think what I do at this point, though, is go back to the dealer and demonstrate the issue because I think they're writing it off as just uh, overnight corrosion and not an actual braking problem. Also, the other part of it is there was a technical service bulletin that came out to uh, electronically adjust brake sensitivity. And I would just want to make sure that that technical service bulletin has been done to the vehicle. And that might also help eliminate part of the problem. All right. Well, thanks for that question. We do need to go to another break. More of your questions for Jamie Page Deaton and John Paul. When we come back, this is Maine Calling. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You're listening to Maine Calling today on the show, Advice on Cars. My guest, AAA's John Paul and CarTalk.com's Jamie Page Deaton. If you're quick with your question, you can join our conversation. The phone number 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org or find us on social media. Here's a question uh, from Tom. Jamie, I'll send this one to you. I would like someone to explain why the government thinks that electric vehicles are the future in Maine transportation. Maybe your experts can weigh in on the hype about electric vehicles, especially in northern Maine. A really good question. Um, and I think it's important, you know, to to keep these kinds of questions in mind because electric vehicles are not the only alternatives to a gasoline-powered vehicles. There are hydrogen-powered vehicles, there are liquefied natural gas-powered vehicles. But um I am not involved in main politics or anything like that. If I had to say why they're being hyped, however, by not just Maine, by but by all other governments, is because they are the easiest next step. 
Um, and they're also what is being pushed. I don't want to say pushed, but that's, that's the direction that automakers are moving on. So it's what's available. Um, and so as states and, and other governments work to reduce carbon emissions and work to help citizens reduce their own carbon emissions, they're looking for the next easiest step. And that's what an EV is. So if you're talking about, you know, an alternative, like a hydrogen powered vehicle, um, you know, up in Maine and in New England, Oh boy, Jim. best of luck fueling that. But if you have an EV, yeah, yeah. If you oh, have I'm an sorry, EV, you then, froze uh, you a little have... bit. But you're oh, back. Okay, okay, okay. Well, just saying that um, you know, if you have a hydrogen-powered vehicle, it's going to be really hard to find fuel for it. Whereas if you have an EV, I mean, it might take a while, but fuel is really as far away as your as nearest outlet. Um, and so that's what that's it's just kind of the easiest next step, and it's where automakers are going, and governments are trying to follow along. And speaking of EVs, we have a call here from Kathleen um, at Maine Conservation Voters. Kathleen, what would you like to add to the conversation? Well, thank you so much. And yes, you couldn't have teed, teed me up better. Oh, <laughs> Kathleen, Kathleen, before you keep going, are you on a speakerphone? If not, if you could uh, take it off speaker. I am not, but... Oh, okay. Well, go on. Go on. Is that better? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm Kathleen Neal. I'm the Senior Director of Policy and Partnerships at Maine Conservation Voters, and I wanted to point out the connection between electric vehicles and Maine's new clean energy targets. Governor Mills recently announced the goal of powering Maine with 100% clean energy by 2040, which is 10 years earlier than the previous 2050 target. And this goal, which is you know, really well within our reach, is going to be a game changer for Maine. Across Maine, so many of us saw prices at the gas pump just skyrocket in response to things we have no control over. You know, the, the war in Ukraine and our, our reliance on foreign oil and gas has really been tough for, for many Maine families. But that 100% clean energy goal is going to get us to the point where we're powering our cars with homegrown Maine and made made in Maine energy like solar and wind. Great. Kathleen, I really appreciate your enthusiasm, but we have 10 minutes left in the show and about 20 people who want to ask a question. So I thank you very much for your enthusiasm about electric cars. But we're going to uh, move on. And this question is from e an email from Jean. She says, we have had great experience leasing a Bolt. We are on our second three-year lease. Costs about $5,000 a year total. Please mention this way of having an EV at a manageable cost. So um, I know that both of you talk about the fact that leasing is not really what it used to be. John, I'll toss to you here. Well, I mean, there are those people who say that you know, you should always buy an appreciating asset and lease a depreciating asset. And, you know, when it comes to cars, there's nothing that really depreciates any more than a vehicle does. The other part about leasing, and especially leasing, I'm not a big leasing person normally, but leasing an EV to me can make sense because you're leasing the basically the technology of the day. And in three years or four years, when you go to trade that car in, first off, you're going to be faced with the you know, the trade-in of, well, you know, it's four years old and, you know, the battery's just about worn out, which is not true. Most of the batteries are lasting at least 10 years. They're warranted for at least eight. Um, so when you lease it, you're also getting a new vehicle with the newest technology. So you have to remember that even though electric vehicles have been around since the turn of the last century, 
really all of the new stuff with electric cars has really only happened in the last 10 or 15 years at the most. So the technology is changing really, really fast. And to stay up with that, leasing kind of makes a lot of sense. So you lease the car, you enjoy it for three years. And at the end of three years, you if you want to keep it, you keep it and you buy it for whatever it's worth. But a lot of people just lease another one and have the latest new technology and the idea that the car is going to be brand new and not have any repairs needed. James is calling from South Berwick, continuing the this thread of discussion. Hi, James. Go ahead. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I was hoping the panelists could answer my question about um, purchasing used EVs, hopefully for under $20,000. I know the battery is warranted for eight years or 80,000 miles, it seems like. And I was wondering if they could point me towards makes or models or certain years um, where the battery would last for you know a couple more years for a used EV under, under 20 grand. All right. So somebody has leased that EV for three years, given it back. And now Jamie, James wants to buy it. What should he look for? So first, that battery warranty, you know, 80,000 miles for the battery seems to be the base. I've seen battery warranties that go up well over 100,000 to 120,000 miles. So make sure that you're checking two things with the warranty for any used EV. First is how long it is. Second is, is it transferable to you? Because there can be some warranties where it only applies to the original owner. The next thing that I would look at, James, is I am an absolute fan of the Volkswagen Golf EV. They have been retailing for around, or they've been selling for about $12,000. So well under the $20,000 price tech price cap that you're talking about. Um, it's a good small hatchback. VW did not make a whole lot of them. Um, and they're out there and they're good. You can also look at some of like uh, these bolts that are coming off of leases. Um, now, right now, the real glut of and the real big wave of EVs hit the market about two years ago. So if you really want to be spoiled for choice and you can wait a year, wait a year and you will have a lot more options available to you because those three-year EV leases from, you know, 20, or sorry, 2021 will have ended. So if you can hold on, I'd say hold on, but otherwise the VW Golf EV is a great affordable option as is a used Chevy Bolt. John. And the other thing is, you know, keep in mind, and if you're looking even at something a little bit less expensive, like a Nissan Leaf, for instance, which you could buy for six to $10,000 because it's one of the oldest EVs on the market, look at the range. Um, you know, know what the range is going right into it. So if the car had a 150-mile range when it was new, with the fully charged battery, you'd want to see somewhere within 10 to 15% of that. If you look at the, if you, if you look, especially if you're looking for something that's a little bit older and you look at the range and it's a 150 mile range normally, and the best it can do is 80 miles, the battery in it's probably getting near the end of its life. Unfortunately, not every EV manufacturer has a way to test the battery internally you know if you have an iphone you can look in and it'll tell you you know how good your battery is you know what the battery life is that is not always the case with an ev the other thing is there has been a lot of flooding all across the country and there's been a lot of uh flooded evs that have come back on the market so do some background checks as well if you're buying it from a dealer um have them do the carfax checking and all that kind of thing make sure you're not buying someone else's problem all right, James, thanks for your question. We'll go to Portland and Jerry. Hi, Jerry, go ahead. 
Yes, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a 2015 Jetta TDI, so it was the last of the uh, diesel Jettas with the newer engine, and they put a stop sale on those like four months after we bought it. So we kept it, and then when we had the modification available, we did that. It it has um, this long warranty still, and it gets great fuel economy and performs well, but we continue to kind of be concerned about the environmental impacts of driving this vehicle. So just wondering what your thoughts on on the last of the Jetta TDIs. Jamie. I mean, I, this is this is a really tough one. Um, if you have had the repair done, the modification done, it's going to be cleaner than it otherwise would would be. Um, and so that's the one thing I think that you can keep in mind. You know, before the modification was done, you're probably polluting more than you really wanted to. Now that the modification has done has been done, um, the emissions are going to be in line with other small diesels. So I wouldn't worry too, too much about it, particularly since, you know, the gas mileage is going to be, I shouldn't say gas mileage since it's diesel, but the fuel economy is going to be really good. So you're going to be using less fuel overall. Um, So, you know, Jerry, I wouldn't let this keep me up at night. You did what you thought was right. You've gotten, you know, you bought a good diesel car. It was VW who was making the mistake there. You did the modification that was recommended. And so you've done everything you can. And now you're your car is in terms of emission is in line with other small diesels and so i think you're in you're in good shape all right jerry thanks for your call um john i'm going to ask you what i might refer to as a car geek question i suspect you'll love this an email from flash please help prevent me from going on a fool's errand i want to convert an any old car that has an air-cooled engine to electric preferably an early model Corvair, VW Squareback Wagon, or Citroën GSA. My reason being the absence of cooling apparatus would make for an easier transition. Am I in the realm of reality? Well, you can do anything you want if you have enough time, talent, and money. And the money is part of it. In fact, you can buy essentially a bolt drivetrain directly from General Motors. It comes in a big box and you can you can install it with the battery pack. Um, there are also companies that do conversion. Uh, I recently saw a Volkswagen Beetle that was fully electric and it, and it used a, a variation of a Tesla battery pack. So the idea of using an air-cooled car like a Corvair or a Volkswagen Squareback, um, the, the drivetrain is going to kind of fit in the back uh where the corvair where the corvair was uh flat six usually sat in the front trunk uh is a good place to put the battery pack now the issue is how well it all balances out weight wise so you might end up with some batteries under the back seat and some under the trunk um it's a it's absolutely a fun conversion to be able to do and i've seen a couple of them uh but again it takes time talent money to make it work really well Mm, and, you know, Jamie, I assume this would be a question for John. Well, in part because he posts so many pictures of old cars on social media. But uh, this is something interesting to you as well. Oh, you're on mute. Go. So I have been um, my I have a lease on a car that's coming up in the next year and a half. And so I'm starting to research what would be my dream car, which is a Volvo 240. So one of the old official cars of New England um, and doing an EV conversion with it. And I found a number of companies that do it. And the thinking behind it is, is, you know, the Volvo 240 is bulletproof. Um, so why not just turn it into an EV and keep it bulletproof and keep it running for a lot longer? Um, you know, there are some considerations too, to keep in 
mind, you don't want to put in too powerful of a powertrain to where, you know, the car's overall setup can't handle what the powertrain is putting down. Um, but this is something that we're seeing like in classic cars and car shows, whatever you go to cars and coffee, somebody has something they've converted into an EV. There are kits available to do it. I'm not as talented as John Paul, so I'm not going to be doing it myself, uh, but, you know, hiring it out for somebody who's got expertise in it is definitely an option. So if you have an old car you love, and the reason that I love the Volvo 240 is because I learned how to drive in one. And every time I'm behind the wheel of one, I feel 16 again. Um, so I want to feel 16 again and plug my car in at the end of the night. Oh my goodness. We're going to go to Larry from Bangor. Hi, Larry. We just have a couple minutes left, so please be quick. Yeah, um, I'm a disabled vet. I've had my knees replaced four times. I have trouble getting in and out of cars. Um, I had a Prius, and I was getting 52 miles to a gallon. I loved it, but I had to give it up because I couldn't get in it. I now have a Ford, uh, excuse me, a Forerunner, and I've ordered a Ford F-150 Lightning, and I'm wondering if there's something out there that's cheaper than the Lightning where I can still get the $7,500 rebate. All right. Good question. Who wants to take this one? Is the answer the I same think... as your other ones, uh, John? Yes, Jamie's nodding. She would say Ford Maverick. John? Yeah, I, I would agree. And the Maverick, like any small truck or small SUV, it's going to be easier to get in and out of. And, you know, the, the seats are sort of chair height. So they're easy to, you know, as you start to have some mobility problems, get in and out of. So I think the Maverick would be a good choice. Um, also, we're starting to see uh, plug-in hybrids from a variety of manufacturers now. So maybe look at something like that as well. The Lightning, good luck trying to get one. We have 35 on order uh, at AAA. And we're starting to hear there's, they're at least in production at this this point. So the Lightnings are a little slow to slow to come up to to uh full production but they're fantastic vehicles so well larry thank you and that will be our last question of the hour um i apologize to any of you who could not get through today um and i want to thank our guests as always jamie page deaton editor-in-chief at cartalk.com and john paul senior manager for public affairs and traffic safety with triple a northeast today's sound engineer Keiji Akimaladun. Main Calling is produced by Cindy Hahn and, and Jonathan Smith. And as always, please go to maincalling.org to subscribe if you haven't already to our weekly newsletter. Links that you hear mentioned on the programs during the week will be in that newsletter as well as a little bit of a tip off about what's coming up the next week on Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You have been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.